Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Marcy, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Sure. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. My name is Marcy Caldwell. I'm a clinical psychologist um, and an ADHD specialist, um, and I have a practice um, as well as um, a website and blog um, all about adult ADHD. Now, how'd you get interested in ADHD? So the story that I typically tell is, um, which is true, <laughs> but only the part of it, um, is that um, I, right out of grad school, um, had was really focused on um, assessment. Um, and so testing for, um, for people. And that testing, usually what people would were willing to get tested for was usually learning disabilities and ADHD. Um, and so I did a lot of that work. Um, I also had kind of a small therapy practice. And after people would do an assessment, um, sometimes I would recommend therapy and they would often kind of say, well, but I just kind of told you my whole life story, right? These assessments take 10, 12 hours. They're very in involved. Um, and can I just stay with you? I'd rather not kind of like go find somewhere else. Um, and so eventually I kind of developed this practice full of folks with ADHD, almost kind of accidentally. At the same time, I also met my now husband who also has ADHD. And so it just all of a sudden felt like my whole world was about ADHD. And so I went searching for more education, more training, because I really don't teach anything, you know, outside of kind of a 10 minute section in, in one class, they don't really teach much in grad school about ADHD. Um, so I went searching for more information, more training, um, and, and found that it really was a great fit for me. Um, I found that there was a lot about the ADHD experience that I really related to and understood. And there was also a way in which my brain seemed to, to fit well with ADHD brains in terms of I could kind of bring in some, some organization um, and linearity that a lot of ADHD brains didn't have. But at, at kind of the base level, I felt like I, I knew it and understood it. Um, and so that was kind of the genesis of, of my specialization. Fast forward, you know, six, seven, eight years. Um, and after having kids and, you know, in a large practice and kind of a big, um, full life, um, I had a lot of things that were showing up in my life that were a whole lot like my clients. <laughs> um, and I was like, what is going on? Is this just, you know, modern life? Is this, do I actually have ADHD? What, what is this? Um, and the truth is, um, and it's not the most satisfying truth, but the truth is that it is very, very hard to get an accurate look at whether I have ADHD or not at this point, right? Because all of the tests and all of the measures that we would use, I know too much about them. <laughs> um, and, um, and I'm kind of too inundated to be, to even present to an objective observer, an objective truth. Um, and it's kind of the, the, the downside of getting so involved. Um, 
And so I tend to call myself in the messy middle. Um, I think that, um, as I said, there's a lot about the diagnosis that really resonates for me personally. Um, and there are definitely some things that don't. Um, and, um, and I think that there's somewhere, you know, neuroatypicality exists on the spectrum. And I think I'm somewhere in the middle of it. Have you tried taking medications like ADHD medications to see if they balance you out? Yeah. So I, um, I actually took ADHD medications, um, a decade ago, um, before any of this was a question, I took them for a episode of, of, um, narcolepsy that I was experiencing. Um, and, um, I do not respond well to them. So I haven't tried since then. Um, and, um, but I, I do all the things that I work with clients on doing, right? So I do a lot of exercise um, and I do all of the planning and I do all of the scaffolding, all of the, all the nutrition um, and all of the things that I know that really have a lot of evidence to support in terms of kind of supporting um, neurotypical brains and providing more regulatory capacity. Before we get into like, cause I'm non-medicated, but before we get into like other measures, like I've talked about exercise as being, it helps me balance out a lot. And I'm sure a lot of adults out there, I know there's a bit of a controversial kind of stigma with some medications that I've talked to with some ADHD people. They kind of look at me like, take the medications, all this. I'm like, well, if it's a part of me, I'd like to learn how to harness it and try and find a way to work with it or something of that sort. But I wanted to ask about the assessment. What's a basic assessment for trying, if someone goes in thinking that they might have something and they're taking an assessment for ADHD and have that, has that changed from where we're at now from when it first started? For sure. It's changed a lot, actually. Um, so when I first got into this field, um, kind of early 2000s, the assessment was a very involved thing. It was that that 12 hour kind of assessment that I was talking about earlier that involved all kinds of neuropsychological measures, all kinds of symptom measures, collateral information, record review. Um, and while those are still done and those are still required for to get, let's say, accommodations, so like extra time or a private room or something like that on some kind of testing, like the SATs or GREs or, you know, medical boards or whatever. Um, they, and there's a growing consensus, um, and I very much fall in this camp, that those are not actually a great measure of ADHD, um, particularly for, and I hate this term, but what's called high functioning adults, right? So for adults that are out in the world, managing, have, have a job, you know, at school, right? Um, and for, because for those folks, they've figured it out to some degree, right? Um, and those tests, they, so they, when, they, when you do one of those tests, no single part of that test lasts for more than 10 or 12 minutes. And you have somebody sitting in front of you, you're in a quiet room, that's the only thing there, right? Like you're told to turn off your phone, all, all the distractions are kind of gone. And you have someone sitting in front of you kind of telling you like, do this thing. And you do this thing for about 10 minutes and then you switch and you do another thing. 
And then you switch again and you do another thing and you take a break. And it's kind of very well set up for ADHD brains and particularly for intelligent um, ADHD brains that have been able to figure out how to work within those kinds of confines, right? Um, so there's a really high, what we call false negative rate, meaning that without that kind of testing will say, no, this person doesn't have ADHD even when they do. Um, and it's because of this, the kind of artifacts of the test. Um, so not only is it more involved and therefore more expensive um, than it needs to be, but not as accurate as what we tend to do more now, which is a shorter version. In my practice, we call it a diagnostic assessment, but it carries different names at different um, practices. Um, that is more about symptoms, more about kind of what's going on for you right now. Um, what's your history like with this experience? Um, does do some kind of basic um, neurological measures, but nothing super intensive. Um, and then collects, again, information from other people, um, some kind of record review, um, and compiles that all into, into a um, evaluation and report. Now, besides it being more effective than it was in the past, do you still think it's an effective measure? I'm sure they probably get still false negatives or false positives on ADHD. I went to go get diagnosed again because it had been so long since I was, I was a child when it first happened. So I just went because I wanted to try Adderall and see if it were some type of medication to see what I would be like on those stimulants to be a more functioning adult. And I was sitting there, I was like, I just have to send you a podcast episode you got to look at or something. And the guy's like, what? I was like, I already know too much about it. I'm interested in it. So I just start researching it and I don't stop until I feel satisfied. And sadly, I do not feel satisfied in it. So if you tell me I have to act this certain way, do I have to do this? Do I have to do this? In my head, I'm thinking all these millions of things where I go, you got to catch me in the moment when I'm hanging with a friend and I'm not even thinking about what I'm doing and I'm just going off about something. So I'm wondering if those tests now, I mean, would you still consider them? Obviously they're more effective than the ones in the past, but is there a way like we can do a blood test or anything that we could find genetically that like, besides looking at like a history record of family history or something of that sort, is there a way that you can get a blood sample or something that's more definitive of like, oh, it's hundred percent. This is a level that spikes up. And we see that with ADHD besides like getting a brain scan. So I have to say that if you had told me all that, um, if I were testing you and you had told me all that, I, I definitely <laughs> would have put that in, in the column for like ADHD. All right. The like diving in and, um, one of the fabulous things about ADHD brains. Um, uh, but yes, we, there is an endless search for the blood test, right? Like we, we would love, <laughs> love a blood test. We would love to be able to say, here is the genetic marker, or here is the biological marker that says yes or no. Um, I think a medical professionals would love that. B, I think the general population would love that because it, you know, feels a little bit more like, oh, I can hang my hat on that, right? Um, you know, I have diabetes or I don't have diabetes. <laughs> I have cancer, or I don't have cancer. Um, and and it feels less like this murky thing that does involve um, some discernment. And so 
but no, we don't have it. We don't have it yet. They're still, you know, they're certainly looking for it, um, but we don't have that yet. Um, and I don't know if we ever will. Um, I certainly don't see that in our, you know, near-term future. Um, that ADHD is a, um, a brain difference that is expressed in symptoms and therefore we evaluate evaluate it based on symptoms. Um, and so we evaluate it based on kind of how, how it shows up in the world. Um, and therefore we need to rely on observation on what you have to say on what people around you have to say. Um, we do our best to try to find ways to make that more objective and less subjective. Um, but there will always be a subjective component to it. When do you, I mean, what, what would you recommend in your personal opinion of when would be a proper age for someone to be assessed for ADHD? So I, with some exceptions, I, always feel nervous about diagnosis happening kind of before age seven. Um, and because development is such that things are constantly changing and, and evolving, right? ADHD is a neurodevelopmental disorder. Again, hate that word, um, but that's the wording we have these days. Um, and it's, and so how it progresses and how it shows up changes as people grow, right? Um, and, but there's so much variation in early development that it's really hard to tell, you know, is this because this, this kid has ADHD or is it because this kid has something else or is it because this kid is just developing at a slightly different rate than their peers? So, I usually recommend that people hold off um, until kids are, you know, kind of eight-ish. Um, and that's when we start to really be able to see a little bit more clearly. Um, I, I do think that the earlier, the better, you know, with that exception, right? Um, because what I see in my practice is a lot of adults who got a later diagnosis, right? Not a childhood diagnosis, but a later diagnosis. And with that later diagnosis often comes a whole lot of shame um, because what happens is we walk around in the world, we're different than the people around us. The world doesn't kind of always work that well for us. And we feel that difference, right? We feel kind of the tension or the friction of having a brain that's different than other people's brains and is different than the systems are created for, right? And we, as kids, it's too, it would be too psychologically threatening to think, oh, there's something wrong with the, the world, right? There's something wrong with the systems that I'm living in. Um, and therefore, in order to kind of feel safe in the world, we have to make it wrong about us. So we don't say, oh, there's something wrong with my school. There's something wrong with my parents. There's something wrong with, you know, society at large. We say there's something wrong with me. Um, I'm, I'm wrong. I'm bad. And that's why this, this mismatch is happening. 
Um, and so that, that ends up creating a lot of shame. Um, and that shame is often kind of what we call pre-verbal. So it, it, it's happening at this kind of unverbalized way that is really hard to shake, really, really hard to shake. And so if we can give kids a name, an understanding of, and, and we don't have to do it in a bad way, right? Like my, my son has ADHD and he is the most proud of his ADHD, right? He walks around, he's like, I have an ADHD brain um, because he knows how wonderful ADHD brains can be. He, know, he also understands what their vulnerabilities are, but he really appreciates the things that it brings him. Um, and, and we can do that for kids. We can say, yeah, your brain's a little different. And these are the really cool things about how your brain is different. And here are the vulnerabilities and here are the ways that it's not going to fit all that well with a system that was created for other brains. So let's figure out ways of creating systems that work for you and for your brain. Um, and let's, let's figure out how to kind of help you do that. Well, how much actually boils down to the person getting an assessment or based on people, I guess, society evolving and understanding ADHD more, like having more of an acceptance? A late diagnosis means that you start looking back at your life and wonder if you would have been medicated or if you would have found a way to get on top of this earlier, then you probably would have been a more successful human. It's the way I think about it. If I was probably on top of it more, doesn't mean necessarily mean it's true, but then I start feeling shame towards, well, I went all this time just not thinking about it and trying my hardest and not doing as well as I could have when I could have been on top of it earlier. And then, but it's not my fault though. It would just be, there's not a lot of people, especially when I was a kid growing up, there wasn't a lot of research and focus on ADHD. It wasn't like missing an arm. Like people didn't take notice if you had ADHD, you were just an annoying kid or you just didn't care about school. And then like I had a, like I said, one of my friends has ADHD and she's telling me, she's like, yeah, I work two jobs and barely can afford my house. And some days I'm just like, maybe better if I just off myself. And I just started laughing. I was like, that's how I think too. But obviously we don't do it. I was like, but that's a thing because you're in a society that has not worked with ADHD as well as within a regular, I guess, regular functioning people or whatever you want to say the term usage for it. And I go, it's not our fault that we're not like that. And she's medicated. So she's trying her hardest still. I go, I just think it's just difficult because we don't have really, we have a one neurotypical, this is how everything kind of functions instead of a wide range, which is why I stress the importance of like, well, I'll ask you this, but late adolescence, what age are we talking about that? Because I've really stressed the importance about adults, especially my age range, 25. And I look, I care about kids. I really do. But I also think this is like a really weird you know, if you talk about late growing up with some kids with ADHD or adults with ADHD, you, you're coming with a whole host of adult problems being stacked on things that are already ramped up to like 10 times what it's supposed to be. Even though one day you might have a really bad day, one day you might have a really good day. It's just in that I consider prioritizing that because especially in today's time, there's a lot of people that aren't happy with the way life's going. And in that moment, if they're thinking like how my friend just said that some people do that and that's a horrible so that's where I prioritize. I'm curious where you would, I guess, focus, obviously your work focused on late adolescents and adults, but do you think that a lot of more consideration should be taken to, I mean, ADHD adults, but also the people that are masking it too. I mean, I masked it for the longest time until I started researching about it and I was like, holy crap, wait a minute, this was all ADHD. I just thought I was like, just crazy or something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I fully agree that I, 
and and I'm very appreciative. Um, you know, I think this is one of the the little gifts that COVID has offered us is a a rise in interest and looking at ADHD. Um, there are a lot of reasons that it's tied with COVID. Um, and and this this understanding and greater proliferation of, of information about ADHD, particularly for adults, because for so long we only un understood it for kids and particularly white male hyperactive kids, right? And so that we're broadening this understanding of what ADHD looks like. And that in, that broadening involves adults. It also in involves women and girls, and it involves people of minorities. And so we have, we have a much more broad understanding and more nuanced understanding of how it looks because it does look very different um, according to different ages, different groups, whatever. Um, and I think the more nuance that we we get, the better we are at, at figuring it out. And as you said, you know, the, the, that masking, it's really painful. Um, it's painful in terms of the shame that it can create, but it's also painful in terms of the amount of time and energy and attention that it takes away, right? Um, and when we can kind of just understand like, hey, listen, this is how my brain works. Um, these are the things that it's really great at that I want to capitalize on. And these are the things where it's more vulnerable and, and, and struggles. And then you can figure out, okay, well, what systems can I create to help with those vulnerabilities? And how can I communicate this out in the world to help make sure that we're capitalizing on my strengths and making up for my vulnerabilities? I sometimes use the example of, it's like we're all running a race um, and some of us are, are meant for marathons, right? We're like meant for that like long, slow, not slow, but slower um, um, race that is, is relatively flat and consistent. And then other people in this race are actually like hill sprinters, right? And they love to sprint up a hill and then be done <laughs> and take a break. Um, but we're all running a marathon. And so when when the when that race is set up for those for those marathon runners, right? Like there's all the cheering's happening on the hill um, and the long flats, there's nobody there because marathoners are fine with that. That works for them. But for those hill sprinters, they need the cheering on the long flats, right? They need the support there. They don't need the support on the hill. That's that's what they're used to. That's what they're good at. And it's the same thing with neurotypical brains and ADHD brains, that the world is set up to celebrate the things that neurotypical brains do well. Um, and it's set up to support neurotypical brains in their natural struggles. Um, and the opposite is true for ADHD brains. When you are working with a patient, what's the common problem that they have like when it comes to just life in general? Is it managing emotions or is it just, just adult things like bills or working or stuff that's like time scheduling? I know time's a big thing for me. Um, mostly I can't keep track of it. Like it just doesn't exist. Uh -huh. But I'm curious what out of the people you've speak to and you've been able to help and get on like either a plan or something that is it time? Is it emotions? It really, 
is all the things, <laughs> right? Because um, when your brain works differently, it works differently across the board. Um, and so a lot of people will find ways to accommodate for how their brain works. Um, and so they may not struggle in certain areas, but I like to think of ADHD as kind of being um, a triad. There are kind of three parts to it. So the first part is what I call the regulatory part, which is the basic neurobiology of ADHD brains. Um, and sometimes they describe this as kind of like every, every brain is, if you imagine kind of one of those, um, those big, why am I having a hard time coming up with the words, um, in like a sound studio, one of those big mixing boards, right? And so a neurotypical brain would be that mixing board with lots of fader switches so that it could find just the right amount, just the right amount of effort, just the right amount of attention, just the right amount of focus, um, just the right of, um, amount of emotion, right? And it's kind of constantly configuring all of those fader switches. An ADHD brain would have just as many switches, but rather than fader switches, they'd be on-off switches. And so they go all in or all out. So they have all, all the attention and focus and they're in hyper-focus, or they kind of have like this all out wandering focus, right? That isn't landing any particular spot. Um, and same thing with action and effort and um, energy and um, emotion. They all kind of have these on off switches for an ADHD brain. Um, so that's the regulatory component. Then the next component is the practical component, which is kind of how all those on off switches show up in everyday life, right? And that could be the like being late or um, not being able to keep track of time or um, procrastination or disorganization or whatever, kind of how those on off switches show up. Um, and then the third component is the emotional. And that's kind of, it, it's twofold. One is that emotions also come in this kind of all in, all out sort of way. Um, but the other is that it's living and, and existing in this world with a brain that the world isn't all that well suited for. Um, and so the, the shame and kind of baggage that you come along with that. So those three components all interplay. And so when we're working with folks, we're always looking at all three of those. Um, and we may, you know, people may come in saying like, my house is a mess. My life feels like a mess. I can't keep track of anything. Help me. Of course we start there, but we're always aware of kind of the other two and how they're impacting that one thing that they're bringing to us um, and making sure that they're, that we're, addressing those so that we can kind of lift up um, the, the part that they're struggling with. Now, when we talk about alternative treatments, um, instead of maybe someone that wants to use medication to treat their ADHD, what would you recommend or what have you seen in your perspective that works for some people? Like exercise is one for me. I know there's a little bit of research on that. I've talked to someone in the UK who's doing studies on different forms of exercise to be able to uh, help out with some subtypes of ADHD. But I, besides exercise, I mean, I could do six hours of cardio. That's just not productive to do that, you know, every single day. Eventually, after a while, my knees are not going to make me, I guess, walk past 30. So, yes. Um, 
I hear you on that. My, my brain loves much more exercise than my body does. Um, so, and there's actually, there's a ton of research on it. Um, there's a wonderful book um, called Spark that I would highly recommend um, on the benefit, the cognitive benefits of exercise. Um, and so exercise is definitely one of them. So when I was talking about that triad model, I kind of, I'm always thinking about the ways to approach each one of those three things, right? And that when it comes to the regulatory capacity, right? Like that, that basic ability to find that kind of middle ground, um, there are really six things that research supports to help find that just right spot. Um, and so they are exercise, nutrition, medication, meditation, sleep and connection. Um, <laughs> sleep is big. So for folks that don't want to do medication or are already on medication, but it's not answering enough of the equation for them, um, exercise and sleep are normally where I start. Um, they normally kind of give you the most bang for your buck. Um, sleep will kind of get you up to your natural max, right? Like your, your body's natural capacity for regulation. It's going to kind of get you there, um, exercise will, will add, right? Because what exercise does, when we look at it in our brains, it, it offers really the same neurochemical cocktail that medication does, um, plus some, plus a lot, actually. Um, and, and the effects of exercise are both acute and chronic. So if you just go out and do 30 minutes of of kind of high impact cardio, you'll get that benefit just right then. You'll get it for about 120 minutes um, and then it'll kind of fade away. But if you go and do that, you know, five times a week for, I think the research is around kind of six weeks right now is kind of like the marker. Um, so for at least six weeks, what we see is that there are actually changes in your brain and in your brain's ability to make use of those neurotransmitters. And so we actually do see people's need for medication decreasing the more exercise they do, they do the more chronically they exercise. So it's a funny word to use with exercise. Um, and so that, I mean, that's huge, right? Particularly for the many, many folks for whom medication is not a good option. Um, exercise can be a really wonderful supplement. You mentioned sleep, but a lot of people with ADHD have some type of sleep disorder or they sleep in what I would call a spectrum. Actually, one area that I'm very interested in, but it has very kind of little research to it. I had a guy on about it, which was sleep and ADHD sleep and nightmares. Because um, it seems like I get nightmares like, I would explain some on the show and some people are like, what are you doing drugs? I'm like, no, I swear to you. It's just how my, but my sleep window is three hours and it feels like 10 years when I sleep. And a lot of people don't necessarily experience that. But for me, I've just been able to function off low sleep, but I've noticed that if I get really, really upset in a day or something happens, like I got three flat tires one time and in, in like a matter of like a week. So it was rough. You know, and then I just took a nap and the next thing you know, you wake up and you're like, oh, the world's not bad. I'll get over this. It'll be a problem that'll be fixed. But a lot of people with ADHD do suffer with some type of sleep problem. Yeah, for sure. So 
about 50% of folks with ADHD have a diagnosable sleep disorder, um, and most have more than one. Um, and so, you know, there are all kinds of sleep issues that occur. Um, and, um, and it's almost like a, a menu that you can, you can, an all you can eat kind of buffet, right? Um, and ADHD brains, um, usually choose more than one. Um, and, and there's a lot of reasons for that. One of the most simple ways that I explain it is that your ADHD doesn't go to bed when you do, right? Like ADHD is still happening. And so those regulation issues that are creating havoc in your day-to-day -day life are also creating havoc at night, having a hard time regulating your sleep. Um, and so it pops awake, you know, it, uh, on a moment's notice, or there's also a lot of anxiety that comes along with ADHD. And so the anxiety can play into it as well. Um, and it's really, you know, it, it's one of the many kind of ways in which ADHD symptoms, um, make the management of ADHD harder, right? Because, when we are sleep deprived, ADHD brains struggle more with executive functioning. Um, and there's a lot of research showing that even just one hour less sleep a night than what, you know, what is recommended for an individual will result in neurotypical brains showing clinical levels of inattention and executive functioning issues. Um, and in, in ADHD brains, you know, it just kind of um, amplifies whatever um, symptoms and executive functioning issues they were having. So um, ADHD makes sleep harder and not getting enough sleep makes ADHD harder. And so it becomes this kind of cycle. Um, and it's a cycle I see a lot in my practice. Um, and it, you know, we do a treatment called CBTI, which is um, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, um, which has actually been is proven to be the most effective, the singular most effective psychological treatment that we have. Um, and it's more effective than medication um, in the long run. Um, but it, it needs to be translated for ADHD brains because, um, CBTI on its own, not super ADHD friendly. Um, and we need to be understanding the sleep issues in concert with the ADHD and kind of how they're playing into each other. Um, assuming it probably spikes up mood dysregulation. Um, when it comes to hair trigger, anger, snaps, and things of that sort that can look like, you know, that's what one thing, like a lot of the wording that gets involved with ADHD, I have a problem with, which I feel like if we kind of flip the script a little bit, it's not like you're tricking someone with ADHD, but I'm like, if I don't think of it as a task or someone telling me to do something, it'll get done. But if I start like, even when my boss knows to just tell me like, Hey, you mind doing this for me? Like as a favor, it's my job. I should be doing it. But I think they realize like, Oh, he's got not an authority problem, but he just doesn't respond well to someone talking at him, talk with him or talk to him. And I'm like, yeah, it's just, you're kind of tricking me. I get, you know, I get it done. That's fine. I'm not like a dog or a golden retriever or anything, but you know, I feel like it's the wording that we use on a lot of these things. It, and it brings up to a really good point. The people that don't want to medicate 
a lot of people should be considering this as a sense of pride of having ADHD. I mean, the way that they're able to, their brain works in mysterious ways that people would never, I can complete a project that give me a six month time period to do, and I'll do it the day before and get it all done. Now it's going to drain me the next probably week and a half. Um, but I get it done in like record time where it astounds a lot of people. And I go, it's, it's all obviously how the way we think about it. I took Adderall and I really didn't like it that much. It made me more tired and it made me kind of feel like my thoughts weren't there. And maybe I took too high of a dose, might have had to take lower or something. But I go, yeah, but I like when my brain kind of runs off because in a conversation, I'm thinking of a bunch of different things. It makes it hard to focus on, you know, what someone says. But I feel like if a lot of people used to embrace their ADHD rather than try and find ways of like, oh, just take this pill and get over it. You're going to appreciate it a little bit more and then find what you can work with with your strengths like you were mentioning earlier. I agree. I would, but I would also say that, you know, it's not take this pill and get over it, right? That like the medication for ADHD addresses some of the symptoms, some of the time. Um, and, and, you know, even, even the most long-term, um, ADHD medic medications only going to last 12 hours. Um, you live 24 hours. And, and so even if, and, this is never the case, but even if the medication addressed all of your symptoms, um, it would only address it for half of the time. Um, and, and what medication tends to do is for those for whom it works, it tends to kind of give more energy to, to allow that kind of on off switch to find a little balance somewhere in between. Right. Um, and that's really all it does. It doesn't do things like create a linear sense of time, right? Um, it doesn't do things like um, teach the skills inherent in adopting kind of a more linear, for lack of a better word, or more compartmentalized way of organizing. Um, it doesn't do a lot of that translating. And so you're still walking around with an ADHD brain, but you're walking around with an ADHD brain that maybe has a little bit more ability to find that just right spot most of the time. Um, and so for a lot of folks, that just right spot ends up kind of narrowing things too much and they don't like it. And they and they find that it's not, it, it is kind of making the their favorite benefits less beneficial. Um, and so they decide not to use it. But um, but even for those for whom it's working, it's not turning off ADHD, right? Like it's not making people not have ADHD. Um, it's making them feel a little bit more able to find that just right spot when they need to. Now forgive me if I've already you've already said this, but CBT. You mentioned it for insomnia, but could you explain a little bit exactly more what it is and like what methods or ways that you can perform CBT to be able to help somebody out with ADHD? Yeah, so CBT in general, it works on this belief that that our thoughts inform our behaviors um, and that and and our feelings. And so there there's a another triad of 
thoughts, behaviors, and feelings. And if you change your thoughts, you can change your behaviors and you can change your feelings. It's very hard to kind of say to you, well, just feel happy, right? That's not going to work. But if you change the way you think about something, you might feel happier. If you change what you're doing, you might feel happier. And so CBT is really working on how can we change your thoughts and your behaviors and in turn, how that will affect your feelings. Um, and so the CBT that I was talking about for insomnia is just that it's kind of how do we, how do we change what you're doing around sleep um, and how you're thinking about sleep to then kind of change how sleep is impacting you. Um, when we talk about ADHD, so, and in our practice, we, we do something we call ADHD informed psychotherapy, which is a combination of CBT, um, acceptance and commitment therapy, um, dialectical behavioral therapy. There, there are a bunch of kind of different techniques that we tend to use, but the CBT aspect of it is, um, looking at, at what those thoughts are, what we call cognitions are around any given symptom, um, how they, how it impacts how we feel about it. Um, also, what are artwork? What are your behaviors? What are you doing? Right. Um, and where can we create some change to kind of um, dismantle this current situation, right? To kind of move it in the direction that we want to go. Um, and so focusing on those two um, in order to then kind of bring along the, the feeling change as well. Now, when we talk about adults with ADHD, do you find that a lot of them are going to seek therapy after an assessment or seek any type of counseling or services after an assessment? Or do you find that a lot of people kind of just brush it off like they don't have it or maybe something was wrong with the test? I'd have to think there'd be a large amount of denialism with some ADHD diagnoses. Not that like ADHD is a bad thing. It's just that I feel like if the way, especially when someone says disorder to me, I get kind of upset because it makes it seem like I'm like, there's something hindering me from being like a full person or something, or it makes me sound like I'm half a person. And I don't know. I just feel like if someone was diagnosed later in life, you know, they would just shrug it off or just not go into it because of the fact that it has been stigmatized for the longest time. And now it's starting to be more accepted over the past eight years or so. So we get, that was a loaded question. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's fine. We get a lot, we get kind of the whole spectrum. We get folks who come to us for an assessment and then thereafter say, yes, like I want to, I want to manage this better. Help me manage this. Um, we also get people who come in saying, I don't really care what the label is. I just here are the things that are going on for me. Can you help me manage it? And so we, we work with them that way. Um, and then we have people who come in for an assessment and then are like, okay, I don't quite know what to do about that. Like, let me go, oh, we'll circle back, right? Like, I want to kind of think on this a little bit longer. Um, the people who, and, you know, and I tend to encounter these people out in the world more than I do in my practice, right? But the people who are like, I don't, I don't like labels. I don't like, you know, I don't. I don't want to. Um, 
I don't want to have to see anybody because I just want to manage this on my own, right? They tend not to come into my practice, but they certainly do talk to me out in the world. <laughs> um, and, you know, and I think there, there's validity in all of those stances, right? We're all kind of coming at it from different perspectives at different times. Um, and, and where I, you know, would love to see the world get to is honestly a little less label heavy and more about this is what works for me. This doesn't work for me. How do we deal with this, this array of things that work and don't work? Um, and, but we have to get there through the use of some labels right now, right? The, the labels right now help us figure out and kind of have a starting place of like, well, this is what we know about brains like yours, which things of these fit for you. And here's what we know about what tends to work for people with brains like yours and which ones do we want to start with, right? That's kind of what the label is for. It's just a like, there ten, there's a group of people with brains that are similar to yours and these things tend to work for them. And so let's see how you fit and don't fit um, and personalize it from there. Um, and so whether we wanna actually use the label or the term, I don't really care, you know, whatever works for folks, I'm happy to do whatever. Um, but that label serves kind of for research and, and, and science and, and understanding more um, in the background of what's going to work for people or not. This is going to be a really crappy question, but do you think that the research or the community of researchers, probably most of them are good and all that. I've experienced a, a wide range of people, obviously very close where I tiptoe around topics because I know some can be kind of controversial. I just didn't know before because I'm walking into it kind of blind a little bit, but do you think that there is an issue like with some of the research that gets done behind ADHD? Like there's people that work in it have done it for a long time or well-respected, but there's missing the experience aspect, which obviously you can't train, you can't do that. But I've always trusted someone more if they had ADHD and they researched into it because there's just things you can't think of when you're coming in and you have never experienced it before. But some of the things like take this pill and get over it has been recommended by some past guests who research ADHD and are well-recommended by plenty of other researchers. I'm not going to say their names on air, but that was their thing. And I was like, well, that's, you know, I'm 25. Why would I do it now? I, you know, I maybe like to see what it would be like, but I feel like I want to use it as a part of me. So I'm curious on your thoughts and it's feel free. You don't have to call anybody out, but I'm just saying like, do you think that there's a, a mixed match of understanding there's the experience side and then there's the, obviously the work that gets done behind it as well too. Yeah. You know, there, there's always been tension between the clinical world, i.e. the experience world and the research world. Um, and there will probably always be tension there, right? Because one is kind of looking at large scale numbers and, and patterns and data, right? And in order to look at that, you have to be somewhat black and white. And you have to say yes or no. You have it, you don't have it. This is normal, this is not normal. Um, things that when we get down to a one-on-one -on -one level, 
don't make that much sense, right? It doesn't make that much sense to have things be super black and white when we're talking to a singular person. Uh, when we're thinking about the whole array of things that lead into one person's experience. And so there's always going to be the, that tension between the two. Um, and as a clinician, it does often feel like the, the research model, which is also based in the medical model and the medical model, um, feel too black and white, feel too pathologizing, feel like they do not embrace and understand the strengths inherent in the difference and instead say, here's normal and not normal. And if you're not normal, there's something wrong with you. That doesn't, that doesn't resonate for me. Um, a, I think it's harsh and, and cruel. Um, and B, I, I just, it's not my experience. My experience working with thousands of people with ADHD is that these are brilliant minds capable of amazing things that neurotypical brains often are not capable of. Um, and that there's huge strength there. And yes, there are vulnerabilities and there are ways that it doesn't line up well in this world, but that doesn't make those strengths any less real. Um, and, and that it's, you know, I think our responsibility as a society to really help um, people of all kinds of difference find ways to support their vulnerability so that we can, as a society, tap into the strength. Um, because there is strength in difference, right? If we all think the same way, if we all operate the same way, if we all have the exact same motivational structure, we're going to get the same results over and over again. Um, and that doesn't always lead to great results. Where have you seen the most change in your personal opinion from like the education system? Do you see it from workplace? Do you see it from, you know, certain conditions when it comes to like just stuff in society, uh, when it comes to acceptance of ADHD? Now I have every reason to hate the education system for locking me in a room or putting me in in-school suspension because I was known as a problem child. But then I see like some of the stuff and research that I've seen from people that are working in, in these institutions that are trying to help out kids that are obviously look like they might have ADHD or some type of disability, which warms my heart and I start to forgive. But I'm curious in your perspective, where have you seen the most growth from? Is it a lot of workplaces that are like open to like, hey, if you have ADHD, we'll find a way to work with you? Or is it the education system or is it society? I actually think the education system um, has got to be the winner here, particularly early ed. Um, and they have really worked hard at reconceptualizing education as an individual basis, right? And kind of looking at individual strengths um, and capitalizing on individual strengths. They've really they understand more about every brain does things differently, learns things differently, works differently. And how can I meet you? I mean, we're, we're talking about good education here, right? Like there's plenty that doesn't meet this, this metric, but I think on average, um, the educational systems that I've seen have really done a good job at 
trying to put forth that as their primary metric of like, we're going to meet kids where they are. We're going to meet kids with what their strengths are. And we're going to try to capitalize on that. Granted, they're working within confines that don't always allow for, you know, total acceptance of, of strengths. But, um, but I do think that they have a much more nuanced understanding and a much more individualized understanding of, of helping to raise up those strengths and helping to support the vulnerabilities. I think industry and workplace are slowly coming to that um, very slowly, but there is definitely some movement in that direction. Um, society is a large, I don't think it's thinking about it at all. <laughs> Now, where do you think ADHD research is more focused into? Do you think it's the emotional? Do you think it's the more – I just spoke to someone in the Netherlands who's doing research on the financial burdens of people with ADHD, which is just like nobody – like I'm asking her questions. She's like, I don't know because we don't have data on that. And I was like, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but it's like that's – I think it's a large concern to me, especially someone that's dealing with – you know, as an entering adulthood, this kind of aspect of trying to function. So a lot of that comes down to bills. I mean groceries ain't cheap right now. I could tell you that much. Uh, but there's a – where do you think the focus would be? And then also do you trust a lot of the research as well too? I have to think it makes it kind of controversial because of the amount that ADHD can vary on so many different – different things like when it comes to emotions when it comes to sleep when it comes to all these varying factors that they're study on I'm not saying i don't trust the studies it's just i'm saying there's a lot of studies where if i know i'm in a study even though i'm supposed to give my honest answer i'm gonna try and you know find a way to win i hate to be that guy but i don't think you can win in an adhd assessment so i think that i do i trust the research for what it is, right? Like I trust the research as finding patterns. Um, that doesn't mean that a person is going to show up in those patterns all the time, right? It means that some of those patterns might show up in some people some of the times. Um, and But by having the research, we have more of a foundation and a place to start. Um, and I think the first part of your question was kind of like, where where is there the most research? People still think of ADHD as being really only an issue of attention and focus and concentration and energy and kind of activation, right? That is still where the heart of the research is. It's like, what, you know, when when they're looking at outcome measures, they're looking at at attention outcome measures. They're looking at executive functioning outcome measures. They're saying, you know, does exercise make you focus more? Does um, you know less focus mean that you're going to spend more money? Right, like all of that stuff. Um, and but I am very grateful and heartened to see that over the past 10 years, there has been an increase in research on the emotional impact and um, effects of ADHD. Because 70% of adults um, have show some emotional dysregulation that impacts their life in one way or another. Um, and that has, has previously been misunderstood as either a different diagnosis altogether 
or just like not something we're going to talk about in regards to ADHD, but it's very much part and parcel of, of the difference. Um, and very important that we're thinking and working with it because it's also going to impact things like attention, right? That if you're really upset about things on the day where you got your third flat tire, you're going to have a harder time focusing um, than you would, you know, the next day after you took your nap, right? Um, that that that's always going to be a piece of it, um, and and just the dysregulation itself is really impactful. Well, Marcy, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show. Is there a place where people can find any of your links if you want to promote your site and if you have any social media handles as well, too? Sure. Um, yeah, so you can find me um, on adept.org. That's A-D-D-E-P-T.org. Um, my practice is Rittenhouse Psychological Services, um, and I also have a digital course um, for adults with ADHD for managing emotional regulation. That's called Meltdown to Mastery. Um, and I'm primarily on Instagram at adept underscore org. And I'm going to link all those in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. And thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank. Stay tuned for our next episode.